Spencer, you were racing your mountain bike this past weekend at the Whiskey Off-Road, one of those awesome epic rides races. We got to talk about this bike though. Tell me all about your rig. Yeah, Fred, the season's underway and this year I'm aboard Canyon's Lux CFSLX 9.0 Pro Race Bike. It's kind of a long name, but this is really a sweet race setup because it's very lightweight. It's about 22 pounds. It's got uh, this really great handlebar mounted suspension lockout that locks out both of them at the same time. Perfect for the long climbs at Whiskey. And it, uh, it served me well, apart from a flat tire, which I don't think was the bike's fault. I think that was user error yeah i mean the thing about whiskey is it's like you got the fire road climbs Indeed. but then you also have some pretty technical single track which means i mean is it like a hardtail versus dually question like how does this bike fit into that conversation yeah now more than ever they've got single track at whiskey they changed the course for this year a lot of the pro riders go with the hardtail personally i'm more of a full suspension guy and this bike's perfect for that because it is light enough and it's efficient enough that it doesn't really hold you back too much on those climbs. And man, you do want it when you get into like the last 10 miles of a 50 mile race trying to slog through that rough single track. Yeah, just getting ragged on that final descent. Always, always. Well, thanks to Canyon for sponsoring this week's episode of the Vela News Podcast. Let's get on with the show. Welcome back to the Vela News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer. This is a very historic moment mm. in the Vela News podcast. Uh, we got a great show for you this week. We're going to talk about Liege-Bastogne-Liege and the Hilly Classics. We're going to talk about the Whiskey 50. But you know what? More than anything, we're going to talk about my main man, Spencer, over here. Oh. Because this, everyone, is Spencer's final podcast. Spencer is leaving Vela News after five amazing years here, uh, where he was web editor, news director, all-around reporter, guy who rode bikes, guy who had great takes, and he is moving on to the next stage of his career. And we're going we're gonna to have a little Spencer celebration Aww. today. Spencer, what do you have to say for yourself? You're moving on. Yeah, it's been a great five years. And it's been super fun to build this podcast with you and to all of our listeners. It's, it's great to get feedback from all of them. I swear, every time I go to these events like the Whiskey Off-Road, most of the time when people come up to me, they want to talk about the podcast. So it's, it's really cool that everyone has, uh, has gotten into it and they listen regularly. And uh, this has certainly been one of my favorite parts of the job in the last year or two. Uh, so, I mean, you buried the lead. Like, let's talk. You're going to be doing some cool stuff. You're going to be creating some killer content. You're going to be doing some stuff with old bikes. What's your next right? step? That's true, Fred. My new job will be at the Pros Closet, which buys and sells used bikes. And they have a huge museum of vintage bikes. So I'm going to be just doing a wide variety of content for them. And I'm very excited to have part of that be uh, associated with the museum with all these amazing vintage bikes, as you guys know, or maybe you don't, but I last year I rode my 1983 stump jumper at Leadville. Definitely one of the highlights of my five years here at Velo News. It was a very fun project and it was a cool adventure. And I just, uh, I love these old bikes. I love this vintage uh, trend that's been growing lately. And it's cool to keep the history of the sport alive. Man, as much as, you know, you're going going on to be doing some cool stuff with old bikes. Spencer, I'm going to miss you. Yeah, I'll miss you too, Fred. And I'll definitely miss Velo News. It's, uh, it's been really special. And the last five years have been great. And we've done so many cool things. It's, I've gone to so many awesome events, whether they are the Epic Rides series mountain bike races, or I've, you know, I've gotten out to some of the pro road races, including um, liege Baston liege uh, about four years ago, which we're going to talk about Liege in a little bit here, in fact. And uh, that, was a, that was especially cool to see that in person. Just, a, yeah, it's, it's, been a, it's been a great opportunity. And Velo News, 
I'm sure we'll be in good hands with you, Fred, and you'll find a successor that'll be even even better than me. I'm sure there's someone out there. Uh, the next the next uh, the next crop is coming up soon. I don't know. Well. Winning win epic rides, races, posting stories, having funny takes. It's yeah. gonna, big shoes to fill. All right. Well, we're gonna talk more about that a little bit later. But first, as Spencer mentioned, we got to talk about some of the pro racing that went on because Liège Bastogne Liège, Lee La Doyen was this past weekend, and we had some interesting storylines going into the race. Namely, the new finish in downtown Liège. They moved the old finish away from Anz. No more Cote de Saint-Nicolas. No more spotting of the uh, <laughs> that guy who ran alongside dressed in like a pimp outfit. Remember that guy? Oh, yeah. That's right. The uh, yeah. yeah, he would it's always kind be. kind of problematic, a, yeah, gentlemen. Maybe, maybe that's why we don't see him anymore. Maybe yeah. you realize not so yeah. appropriate. Um, and I think what they were. No, no panda, though. There's no always, panda. There's always the panda running alongside Dan Martin. I missed that. And what they were really trying to do was open up the race and not just make it a race for he who had the strongest legs on that drag up to Anz, but, you know, maybe take the action out a little bit more, have more attacks go on some of the cotes, on the coats farther out. And, you know, to a certain degree, I do think we saw that in this year's race. In the women's race, we saw Annemiek van Vluten drop everyone on the big final climb of the day, about 15K from the finish, and solo in with a very healthy margin. And, uh, you know, Annemiek, she had targeted these races. She told us before the Ardennes that, you know, I've always wanted to do well in these races, but she'd never won. Hmm. Because she always seemed to be coming into form in May for the Giro. So she rejiggered her training a bit this year to to, to try and win. And she was almost there at uh, on the Mur de Huy at La Flèche Wallonne, but didn't quite have the punch. But uh, on this wet, cold day at Liège. It looked gross. It looked really gross. I, I believe Anna Vanderbregen told reporters afterwards that she was just too cold. She yeah. like, was too cold to go with her. So chapeau to Annemiek van Vluten for winning. And then in the men's race, we saw Jakob Fugelsang, Mr. Second Place, attack at the same spot, drop Mike Woods and Davide Formolo, and ride a solo into the finish, which also included perhaps the most O-S-H-I-T moment of the Sprint Classics. Yeah, he's going to – you might as well just throw away those bib shorts after that race. No need in trying to wash them after that one. That was so scary. He hit – a strip of of white uh, marking on the road, I don't know, paint or something like that. It's always more slippery on those when it's wet, as we all know. And went sideways, almost high-sided himself, did a bit of a fishtail. Uh, perhaps, the, perhaps the experience as a pro mountain biker coming into play there, yeah. that, that uh, handling skills, pulled out of it. I, w- I, I had to watch it again and again and again because, you know, it's not quite as you know, Cancellara, Milan, San Remo, where he's completely perpendicular to the road, but it's almost there. And it's one of those things that any mere mortal on a bike is going to just eat it into the woods oh, going sure. that fast. And uh, he held it upright. And, you know, Jakob Fuglsang, he's kind of this understated guy. He's always there. I mean, he's won the Dauphiné. He's won some big stage races and done well, but he's never won a big one-day uh, a race like this and there was part of me when he made that move I was like is he gonna screw this up you know like it, it, what's gonna happen here like I wouldn't say he's a rider who's known for screwing things up but he's just not that rider that's been in positions like that to win and so that was the if he's gonna screw it up he's gonna screw it up here moment and he held it together <laughs> yeah and, and I think also just key that he was off the front alone 
because so many times, especially in the last week or so, he's gone off the front and he's been joined by Julian Alaphilippe or someone else who's going to potentially outsprint him in the end. He's more of a diesel engine. And I'm, I'm sure when he went into the race, I'm sure he talked to his team, he talked to his manager, he talked to his coach, and I'm, they probably all agreed that it was important for him to go to the line alone, not bring anyone with him because he didn't want to take a chance on that final sprint. And you could tell that Astana knew he was very strong. So with about 25K to go, as the Peloton was coming into these final series of climbs, I looked at the small diminished group and there were still like six Astana guys there. Yeah. And they all got on the front and um, really narrowed the gap to the breakaway that had, you know, an EF rider and I, you know, the, the names are escaping me right now. But it was it was enough of a tactical race where Astana did have to bring their team tactics to bear. Uh, one Astana rider just rode off the road into I saw that. into a field. Cyclocross. Yeah. Nice. Cross is coming. It, it, this is just a continuation of Astana's really impressive spring season. Up until now, you know, they've won a variety of, of GC races, races, one-week races. Uh, Liege-Bastogne-Liege really caps it off. And this is, I'm looking at the stats right now, their 23rd victory so far this year, which is, that's quite a bit. And that does include the GCs uh, like Catalonia they won. They also won, as you know, some smaller ones. Tour Rwanda, maybe not as maybe not as impressive, but Oman, uh, and then uh, yeah, the, the Columbia, the Columbia 2.1 race as well, which is pretty competitive this year. Well, so Liège Bastogne Liège officially closes out classic season, something that's been going on for weeks, actually months. And I don't know about you, but it's it's my favorite time of the year. Oh yeah, I love these one day races. So a question I have for you, Spencer, is. Who won classic season? Mm, yeah, good question. It's it. I think the fans for sure won this year because the fans were treated to exciting finishes in practically every major race. I would I would say Flesh Wallone was as usual, kind of a foregone conclusion and not particularly exciting until the very final climb. But going back, like you know, Liège was a pretty pretty solid finish, certainly better than years past with this new uh, this new route. And then Amstel was unbelievable with Vanderpool coming from behind to win that sprint. And then, of course, Gilbert winning Roubaix. Who saw that coming? And yeah, like you said, we go back to Flanders. Betty all takes the win. Yeah, who saw that coming? Come on, there's so many unpredictable finishes. So fans really win it. I think overall, I, I don't know. I mean, some people would probably say Alaphilippe won the classics. Uh, you know, we, I think Neil Rogers said that in his column earlier this week, and maybe that's true. He won San Remo, which is huge. Um, but it's, uh, I mean, I think it's a little hard to say strictly that it would be him. I, I think Quickstep on a whole still, again, proving that they're the best of the classics between between Roubaix, between Milan San Remo, between also, you know, Flesh Wallone. That's a pretty solid solid lineup of, of wins. I think conventional wisdom says Quickstep and Alaphilippe won the classics, but there is nothing conventional about Matthew Vanderpool. And True. I say Matthew Vanderpool won the classics because, yes, he did, you know, he won Amstel and he won Skeldapris and he won Dwarves. And Skeldapris and Dwarves are not as impressive as Milano San Remo. But the fa the way in which he won them and the fact that he won them in his debut and the fact that there was a lot of attention and guesswork about how is this super talent going to do when he first entered, you know, he finally gets into really high level road racing. And we saw that he was just completely stunning and amazing. Um, elevated his profile to, I think, I, I think he is actually the most valuable 
person in pro cycling right Whoa. now. We haven't gotten to the Grand Whoa. Tours, but at this point in the season, I think he actually has more marketing value mm. than um, sad Peter Sagan mm. and um, goateed Julian Alaphilippe. I think he is... I, I think his profile raised the highest, um, and uh, you know, yes, we know cyclocross fans. You 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 were you were early, you know, you were early to the Matthew Vanderpool show. You saw him when he was like opening for, uh, you know, like uh, Arcade Fire at you know Red Rocks or whatever. Yeah, but yeah. Name name two of the songs on his first album. Yeah, that's Come true. Uh, I think his profile rose the most, and thus he is the biggest winner of this year's hmm. classic season. I don't know, Fred, though, but. It, it's a yes, it's huge to win Amstel Gold, but it is not a monument. And I feel like if you want to talk about the best rider of the classic season, you have to talk about a rider who won one of the monuments. And in my book, if you're if you put a gun to my head, make me pick, make me pick a rider. It's probably Julian Alaphilippe, the San Remo win, and the Flesh Wallone win combined. I think outweigh. Uh, Matthew Vanderpool's heroics, which are amazing, and I love watching Vanderpool win. He's he's awesome, great, entertaining part of the classics this year. I'm looking forward to next year when he steps it up even further. I want to see him win that monument, but there's just a level of prestige that comes with winning San Remo that I, I just don't think you match that with an Amstel Gold win. What about that moment when uh, Julian Alaphilippe was like about to win Amstel? It was like, oh, he's going to win Amstel. Here he goes, he's going to win Amstel. Oh. Well, if didn't, they didn't win if they just given him accurate splits, you That's know, true. he would have known how hard to ride because I mean it's so unfair when oh, they don't could give him a, a perfectly accurate split to the to the chase group that's flying in from behind only like 600 meters away. We sound like NBA fans now uh, <laughs> complaining about the referees, but it's true. God, the referees blew it in that race. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, and one other thing I want to say too, Fred, though, is that I I feel like Gilbert's Roubaix win is getting overshadowed in all yeah. these conversations about the classics. I mean. It's so crazy that Philippe Gilbert won Perry Roubaix. He's, he's an Ardennes guy. What the hell? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I was at Roubaix, and when you're at a race, you know, you're kind of watching it on TV. You're also kind of trying to work on your stories. You're juggling nine things at once. And so I had to, I went back and watched it this past weekend again. And uh, the fact that he was off by himself for many kilometers of that race and waiting for people to catch up to him and then tactically playing his uh, hand correctly. I think that is, yeah, another really triumph of this season of, you know, a rider who was obviously on really good form, but who really raced smart and knew the course really well, had exceptional luck, but then just put it all together when he needed to, um, you know, so... I'm with you. I, you know, we can't take anything away from any of these victories. Right, exactly. But if you're talking about the overall rider for the season, I mean, let's face it, it's not Batiol. He had no. a great win at Flanders, but that was kind of a one-off. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, yes, there's an argument for Vanderpool, but like I said, I want him to win a monument. <laughs> We're here. Oh, <laughs> Guys, no. you can't just, you can't just burst into the oh, podcast no. studio like this. We're here to air some grievances. Unless... <laughs> Unless you've been invited. Oh my gosh, podcast listeners, take note. Is this one on? This podcast has been completely interrupted by other members. Oh man. Of the Velenus staff. All right, let's get this mic going for yeah. Brad. <laughs> uh, this, was, this was planned beforehand. Um, I am joined right now, happy to be joined by tech editor Dan Cavallari and our uh, photo editor, Brad Kaminsky. And I've invited them here 
because it's we're gonna play a little game of this is your life with uh, with Spencer here. Oh, we're gonna nice. tell some favorite Spencer stories. Oh, good. good because good. it's Spencer's last podcast. Gonna embarrass me. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, Who wants to? Okay. Brad's mic is hot now. Oh, okay. He's tapping I'm away with some plastic. <laughs> Total podcast rookie move, Brad. Totally. Come on, Brad. All right. Brad's our, Brad's our photo director. We don't ever really get him on the mic in here. No, he's got, he has to be on more podcasts. Maybe he could take my place when I'm gone. Yeah. Ever thought of that? He needs to work on his mustache You can tell game. I have a lot to say. <laughs> yeah. Who wants to go first? Who wants to tell the first Spencer story? Well, I've got, you know, my Spencer story is a little bit about rookie moves. Okay. And um, more so about me being the rookie and how, you know, it's... Great working with Spencer and all his knowledge of the sport, how he runs the website, blah, blah, blah. That's all real interesting stuff. Blah, but, blah, like, blah. you're making it sound interesting, <laughs> really, Brad. Thank you. Very what I think flattering. about when I think about having Spencer around the shop was, you know, he, he had this incredible ability to time his entrance to the tech room <laughs> when I'm doing like a tubeless setup uh. at the exact moment that like sealant is spraying all <laughs> over the place or I'll be changing out a rear cassette and like, you know, cogs will be bouncing around on the floor or something like that. And Spencer was always kind of gave me this look like, hey, do you need help with anything <laughs> in here? And I usually can figure things out on my own, but I always took Spencer's help. And like 10 seconds later, I'd be set up for tubeless or yeah. this, you know, the creaky bottom bracket would be gone. So he knows his way around the shop. He knows his way around the website. And uh, he's good out on the bike and just a good guy to have around. Good Thanks. mustache. Good Thanks. mustache. I know uh, you help the me. The mustache is just temporary. This is just for dirty cans. I you help my me little extra. do my tubeless setup before I went to the classics where my bike was yes. stolen. Yep. So whoever is now rolling around on that stolen bike. Can yeah, you're welcome. The great tubeless setup <laughs> to uh, Spencer. Okay. Dan Cavallari, yeah. what's your Spencer story? You know, it, it's funny. It hasn't quite sunk in yet that, that Spencer's leaving. And so I, I, have, a, I have trouble like thinking he's not going to be here tomorrow. And I know for sure that uh, tomorrow I'll be sitting at my desk and I'm going to turn around and be like, hey, Spencer, which is like the most common phrase I speak in the office. Mm. It's like, hey, Spencer, hey, Spencer. Because Spencer always has the answer to uh, the questions I have, uh, even when they're really dumb questions, which are, they usually are. No such thing. Yeah, yeah, no, no such thing as a dumb question. Oh, I, I, can, I can come up with a couple dumb questions. <laughs> okay. I feel like I have. All right. Um, but I, I think, you know, aside from the fact that Spencer's always been sort of that reliable guy that, you know, when I'm on the road uh, in far-flung places, I can always count on Spencer to be the guy that's got his, his act together to make my words sound remotely coherent. <laughs> um, but I think, and Brad and I were talking about uh, Spencer's stories, though, and I was like, you know, I, I, I can't think of him because he's still here, you know. And so the, Brad was like, well, what about what about that interbike e-bike race? And I thought that was great. That was a great Spencer moment because this this brings together a lot of Spencer elements. Uh, because Spencer's, if you've ever ridden, ridden with Spencer, he's insanely strong. Like it's it's almost annoying how strong he is. Like he, if you look at his calves, you're gonna cry just looking at them. <laughs> you're like, gosh, I gotta ride with this guy, you know. And so Spencer seemed like the logical choice to start uh, being our, our go-to e-bike racer. Mm. And uh, one of the first times I saw Spencer race an e-bike was at Interbike. Was that two years ago? Yeah, it was the last year in Vegas. Yeah. So it was 20... Yeah, 2017. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 2017. And we had this great idea. We were going to do a little, little mockumentary of Spencer doing the e-bike race, and it could not have worked out more perfectly. So Spencer lines up with all these, these hotshot names. Yuri Hauswald was there, Nat Ross, and he's, he's right up in front. 
and the race goes off and Spencer's right there with him, e-biking around this big grass field. And then I'm like, all right, Spencer, Spencer's got a chance to win this. And then the, the first lap comes through and Spencer is nowhere to be seen. He is totally gone. And about, I don't know, I don't know, a couple minutes go by and there's Spencer and he's pedaling his e-bike as hard as he's sweating bullets. Oh, it's so hot too. And I'm like, oh. what is going on? And Spencer's like, my motor died. <laughs> he just keeps going. Yeah. You raced that whole race without a motor. No, 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 not the whole race actually. So I did one lap and it like, sometimes they throw like an error message if you turn it on and yeah. you, it, it's still some kinks to work out in the system. <laughs> so I, w I went all the way back to the focus tent, which is where I got the bike right. from and I, I had them fix it. And then I went back out and did like a few more, you know, I finished the race. Yeah, yeah. I think I did catch one person. So yeah. I wasn't quite DFL. <laughs> and also along the way, I managed to like stab myself in the back with mm. the saddle oh, because yeah, right. um, it, it was on the cross course. So there was still the, the, the barrier, barrier section, yeah. which is terrible for yeah. like a, 45 pound e-bike right. and I just I was all, like I got blood all over my I was just wearing like some button up shirt or something I wasn't even wearing kit uh, that was yeah that was a rough introduction to e-bike racing right we but, did a great video about that yeah though. we yeah. did we yeah. had some silly music e when you were content pedaling slowly around that speaks to Spencer's tenacity and, and I'm, I've, I have appreciated everything you've done here and thank and it's you been, it's been great working with you uh, this note comes from Chris Case, our managing editor, who is on vacation right now. My most memorable Spencer anecdote involves cyclocross, sub-zero temperatures, and wardrobe malfunction. Oh, yeah. It was a bitterly cold day in Boulder Reservoir. Bitter. Some riders donned ski goggles so their eyes didn't freeze shut. Some people chose to wear running shoes because the course was so icy. But race we did, and because Spencer and I are hard men from New England, where true cyclocrossers are born and bred, we eventually ended up off the front together. It was a neck-and-neck -neck battle into the final lap. Slick corners made for dicey moments. Eyelashes had become stalactites. Snotsicles drooped from our faces like <laughs> walrus tusks. Into the final corner we rode, battling for position and trying to outwit each other. Suddenly, Spencer's leg warmer slid down to his ankle and I knew I should strike. I unleashed my sprint, my frozen legs churning in square like wooden marionette legs, but no, the one-legged wonder would not be beaten that day. <laughs> Spencer crossed the line, hands aloft, leg warmer asunder to the roar of, well, the roar of no one. No, it was too damn cold to watch no us yeah. idiots race our bikes in polar vortex. How embarrassing that I lost to the Janet Jackson of cross. How embarrassing for Spencer that the only time he's beaten me in a cross race, he had to use a wardrobe malfunction to distract me. I kid. It was a battle for the ages. History is made. Spencer won fair and square, and he's been known as Flojo around the office ever since. Flojo will be missed. Yeah, I don't know if that's true. That's, that's the I, first time I've heard that. I can sympathize with Mike Woods at Liège. That's true. He was he was in the same sort of boat as me. Yeah, but you only won. one only one leg warmer. Yeah, yeah. But, but you uh, you won. So yeah, uh, good uh, stuh uh, say it's a draw. <laughs> for my favorite Spencer memories, like everyone else, I have far too many to list. Um, I will always remember our time doing the Velo News show together. Oh yeah. Because there were so many moments when I would get really flustered <laughs> and my brain would not work anymore and I'd be frustrated. And Spencer, you were a calming force in those moments because a lot of times you would just be like we're just let we're just gonna do this. It's not the end of the world. Let's try it one more time. It's cool. And I would be like ready to throw something or freak out. And uh, Spencer would keep me grounded. Yeah. Uh, I'll have oh, many. Brad was Brad was a cameraman for that too. Yeah, and I, I witnessed Brad, all this. Yeah. Brad helped okay. a lot, I think, because Brad was our he was our audience. Like if we if we got Brad to laugh, we were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're doing good. And today. Spencer had right. a let's just do it live mentality. Yeah, so. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and also just the fact that over the last few years, we you know we're a, we're a very 
small staff here at Vela News. We do a lot with the few people that we have. We cover European races, North American races, mountain biking. We do podcasts. We do the website. We do a magazine. We do tech. We do Tour de France guys. We do so much. And, you know, in magazines and places I've worked at before, everyone sort of has their segmented role. This is what I do. I do my thing. And when you work here, everyone does everything. And so, you know, Spencer, nominally, your role has been to manage the website and write news. And But you contribute across so many different platforms and so much of the stuff that is VeloNews and VeloNews.com is Spencer. So I will always appreciate um, just all of the effort that you put into keeping VeloNews going. Um, you've been a huge asset. Well, thank you. And I mean, that's what makes it fun is doing a variety. So for anyone out there, you know, whatever you're doing, just it's mix fun. It up. Yeah, mm-hmm. mix it up, jump into something different. That's why, I mean, that's what kept me excited about it for the last five years is every year sort of something new was coming along and, and that helps to, uh, you know, break it up and, and challenge yourself. And another thing. Uh-oh. <laughs> and another thing. So I was thinking about this over the weekend as I was out riding and I was like, man, you know, Spencer's been so good and how do we give him a proper send off and talking about all that he's contributed. And, you know, it also speaks to just what VeloNews is, which is, you know, VeloNews is an independent media outlet. We are, we practice journalism. Our thoughts are our own. The stories we choose to write are our own. And when you see what's going on in cycling media right now, it's, you know, it's pretty easy to see what's going on with, you know, brands are telling their own stories and independent media has to find different types of stories that brands can't tell, that brands maybe won't tell. And independent media has to practice independent reporting and has to try and find the truth in these stories. And to a certain degree, we are, you know, it, it's cycling, so it's not exactly like uncovering the Pentagon Papers or anything like that. But we're trying to give an unbiased, personal, um, you know, our, our unbiased opinion of what is going on in the space. We're not being influenced. And Spencer, your ability to function as a reporter and as a storyteller within those boundaries has been really good. And I would say has helped keep independent journalism going in the cycling space uh, because independent journalism across all spaces is going through a tough time right now. Print publications are shutting down. Big newspapers are shutting down. Websites are shutting down. Um, more of the storytelling is going over to the brand side. And I think about some of the strong work that you've done um, around like Little Bellas. You know, that was a story that brands were going to tell someday. You told it first and you told it very well in a way that brands aren't going to tell. Um, your storytelling around the big gravel races in our gravel issue this year. Um, that's a story that you're not going to get anywhere. You told an amazing backstory, a business story about why the Dirty Kanza, after years of telling us, we're never going to sell out. We're not going to sell out. And you know what? They did sell out, but you got the story behind why, why it made sense to them, what people in the community thought about it. You talked about how this new race in Colorado was really able to jump to the front of the line because it used savvy promotion and a big prize purse. And here are these gravel races that take years to create this grassroots following. And this race, through its own promotion and its own business acumen, has jumped to the front of the line. You talked about, uh, what was the, oh, EF. I mean, your ability to seek out independent storytelling and journalism within our world has kept us going. And I will always, always, always 
appreciate you for your ability to do that. Oh, sounds like you're trying to convince me not to leave. <laughs> so, Is it working? That would uh, be awesome. I, yeah, it, it's really stay. special to do that. But I, truthfully, Fred, you've been a big part of pushing all of us to, to report like that and to be more critical and in-depth and to chase stories that are big and interesting and not not necessarily easy to come by. So... Velonews is in good hands because I know you're going to keep pushing the staff to do that. And for you listeners out there, you should consider subscribing to the magazine because that helps support these stories that Fred's talking about and the work that they all will continue to do after I'm gone. And it's, uh, yeah, it's it's definitely an important thing that has to keep keep going, not only in the bike industry, but more generally, obviously, like Fred's saying. His watch has ended, but Spencer, you will always be part of the Velonews family. Um, listeners, if you are an event when you see Spencer Paulison, please go up and uh, pat him on the back, slap him on the back, tell him about all the, the great job that he's done here. Thanks. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break, come back, talk about the whiskey off-road. Okay, we've dried the tears. Yeah, we used up all the Kleenex. We've stopped sobbing. Mm-hmm. We've come to peace with uh, Spencer, our intrepid reporter, editor, moving on. But before you go, Spencer, you got to tell us about all that went on at the Whiskey Off-Road because this was the opener of the 2019 Epic Ride season. You were there. Some of the best male and female off-road racers uh, from the country or was there. What, t- take me through the weekend. What was what was it like? Yeah, so the the real kind of main stories that I was following throughout the weekend that people were talking about, the uh, big thing was the, the different course. They've changed the course to add more single track to the end, and there's less of this Skull Valley climb that's kind of the real, like, decisive big climb of the race often. It's sort of an it's sort of an anachronism of, of an older time when there wasn't as much trail available, and they would just go down this fire road and turn around and come back up. I mean, this race is 16 years old now, so a lot has changed in Prescott since then. They've built hundreds of miles of single track in large part due to the interest that's been generated over the years thanks to the Whiskey Off Road. So finally, they've had a chance to showcase more of these new trails in the race course itself. And that's led to a race that's, I think, in general, probably more difficult. A lot of the pro riders were saying they thought it was more difficult. Kate Courtney certainly thought it was, and I would take her word for it because she's a world champ. And it's uh, it ends up being just kind of the last 15 miles are, are very mentally and physically draining because you're on these twisty, loose dry single track trails with rocks all over the place and that's where I got my flat tire so clearly I'm a good example of someone who is probably not 100% when you got into that final bit of racing and uh, I don't know if it really changed the outcome too much of the pro races Uh, I think the other main point here is just that Keegan Swenson is just flying right now, and so is Kate Courtney, for that matter. Both of them admitting to me beforehand that they're not even really targeting this race as something they're peaking for and resting for. They're training right up into it. It's a big block headed into the World Cups in May. They, they just needed to get in one last hard day, and the Whiskey Off-Road was perfect timing for that. But they still... You know, they still crush the competition. Well, and that's the thing about the 2019 Epic Ride Series is that you do have 
the top, top, top cross country racers, they're really having to ramp up with the Tokyo Olympics on the horizon. Uh, we talked about it a few podcasts ago, but the selection criteria has been released and it's world championships plus world cups, but world cup points do count towards the overall number of uh, riders who can go to the Olympics this year. So, you know, Keegan Swenson, Kate Courtney, Howie Grotz, uh, Chloe Woodruff, some of the top racers are really having their aspirations on the world cup this year. But I, so we, you know, with that in mind, did it did it open the door for any of the marathon specialists? Did it change? Did you feel like it changed the dynamic of the racing at all this year? I'm not so sure if it really changed it too significantly. It's it's a little hard to tell, but I will say that there are a few marathon specialists, or 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 perhaps riders who are a little less familiar who are cracking the podium. Uh, for instance, Russell Finsterwald had his best race ever at Whiskey. He was second behind Keegan Swenson, and and he, Finsterwald is going to do all the Epic Ride series this year. He's very focused on that. He's part of the Cliff Pro team, and Cliff te- the Cliff team is refocused this year, and they're they're going to do the marathon type stuff in the North America. They're not so not so interested in doing the World Cups um, at this point because they feel the the fan interest is more centered around rides like epic rides that sort of thing and then the women's race it should be said that uh, Haley Batten ended up fourth uh, and she is a very uh, strong up-and-coming rider on the cliff team she's she's young at uh, at just I think 20 years of age and was riding pretty much the whole race with Catherine Pendrel former world champion so uh, maybe not necessarily I wouldn't I wouldn't at all consider Haley Batten a marathon specialist but but yeah the the, the opportunity was there and she took it and it was uh, it was cool to see her uh, have a have a have a real breakthrough race result at a, a really foreign race for her she'd never done whiskey before so the other question i have for you spencer is about keegan swenson so he's a name mm-hmm. that's been on our radar for a number of years he has had great success at these epic rides races but you know it's sort of the typical american story which is having uh, tremendous success and being very strong on north american races and then struggling at the world cups where you know howard grotz has been more successful on the world cup campaign he's had more of an international focus you know what what's going on there with uh with keegan do you think he is a realistic world cup heavy hitter or is he more of a north american guy who is always going to be kind of bashing his head against the wall on the world cups I, yeah, I think I think Keegan does have the potential to start breaking into the top 15, maybe even top 10 of some of the World Cups. I think he does have a good combination when it comes to his raw fitness and his climbing ability, as well as his, his technical riding skills. He certainly is one of the best bike handlers that we have, I think, right now, the American men. And also, he's kind of got this really ice-cold killer instinct. I feel like Whenever I go and watch him race, I can always count on him to be able to pull it off when when it really comes down to it. He's not at all, uh, he doesn't shy away from a big moment. I think he's still yet to see his full potential in Europe, but um, right now for me, Keegan Swenson is is the top U.S. man for the international races. Unfortunately, Howard Grotz really hasn't been riding and training as much um, through the start of 2019. I think he's kind of trying to evaluate what he wants to do, uh, whether he wants to continue as a really fully serious pro racer or not. He did come to Whiskey and he ended up 20th, so pretty distant result for a guy who's won the race a couple times. Um, but he did show flashes of brilliance and certainly he's just got pure raw talent, just a matter of whether he 
whether he wants to devote himself to honing that again this year and whether he wants to chase the Olympics again, I, I'm not so sure where he's at. Uh, so, so for me right now, Keegan Swenson is, is a standout in the men, but uh, man, the women's side is really where all the questions start to rise because there's just a really great deep field of American women who could contend World Cup and potentially go to the Olympics. Yeah, and that's going to be, you know, as it always is every four years, great story to follow, which is the fight for the Olympic team amongst the American female mountain bikers, because we always seem to have um, just a number of really strong women, a limited number of spots. So it's always, you know, it's always more, more more people who want to go to the show than there are tickets to the tickets to the show. So that's going to be a good one to follow. Now, star power at this race, Kate Courtney, yeah, world champion was there. You sat down, uh, did an interview with her. We have elements from that on the site right now, talking about going to this Scott Sram team, working with Frishy. You know, seems like sort of a just a new, just a real sort of turn in the page for Kate Courtney. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting to hear from her about what this team is doing for her already in just the first four or five months of her time with them. I think one thing that comes out in this interview that I find interesting is how important the sort of technical element is of cross-country racing in terms of the equipment, the bikes, the setup. Yes, we always look at downhill racing and imagine that as the pinnacle of, of you know bike technology and how that relates to race performance. But I would I would argue that it's not too far cross country is not too far behind when it comes to how deep they're going to get these bikes dialed for them. Kate talks about that about how Frishy and and her new, her personal mechanic. Brad Copeland, who came over from Specialized, how they're all very focused on getting her gear perfectly set up. She also has some interesting insight on Frishy being kind of a he, he's a he's 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 a tough um, he's a tough nut to crack. He he's very um, he expects a lot of her. He gives her a lot of tough love, which she says she thrives under. And um, I think that's um, that's interesting as well because if you look at his his results as through his own career and then his experience cultivating Nino Scherzer to be arguably the best cross country mountain bike racer in the men's field that's ever been. Um, yeah, he's got really high standards and. Uh, I think she's up to it, and she's certainly got the appetite to just that focus on that continual improvement. Cool. Well, let's hear from Kate Courtney, our world champion. Okay, Kate Courtney, we are here in Prescott, Arizona, and we're here for the Whiskey Off-Road. Let's start off. I'd love to hear some of your favorite memories of this race. You've only been here a couple times, but it's still like it's been it's a big race. Absolutely. Yeah. Whiskey was one of my first uh, longer events. So I think the first time I came here, um, I was just excited to throw my hat in the ring and and get some experience racing over our normal cross country time. Um, It was a great first longer race. I think I learned so much and and had a really um, awesome experience in particular in the cross country race. excited to come back last year unfortunately had some mechanical issues and as you know it can be a little unforgiving out there um and had a little bit of a hot and long day but still managed to come in fourth so have had some great memories here and mostly just love the atmosphere and the chance to kind of test myself in a different way it you know draws on skills and on a level of fitness that's a little bit different than the cross-country races so for me it's a chance to get out have fun and and really test 
those areas while knowing that I'm, I'm using it as training for the big World Cup races and, uh, and definitely training through these kinds of events. Mm -hmm. So you're totally underselling it because you won. <laughs> you won the first time you came here, did it? I did, um, yeah. I mean, what was that feeling like when you were in this race that was kind of an unknown to you? You'd never really done that kind of just I don't think you've done that distance before as a race, right? No, no. I mean, so what, was was like? first, what was that like? What was that like? More marathon style effort. Um, I think it was definitely a little bit of a time that I surprised myself. And I think also um, some of your best races are when you're forced to dig really deep kind of against yourself. And I found myself off the front super early. Mm -hmm. It was like, oh, no, this is exactly what I wasn't supposed to do mm -hmm. um, as someone who hadn't raced that long. And I think, of course, the other girls were like, oh, she's going way too early. Mm -hmm. um, but I really, really dug and especially on that Skull Valley climb, just um, managed to open up. I think I got eight minutes on that climb. So oh I really, uh, really dug deep on that one and had no idea where the other racers were. And so it really just became kind of a let's see what my best effort is like on this day. And I think it opened my eyes to the possibilities of endurance racing for me. I think I'm a younger rider, but uh, I do enjoy the longer stuff. Um, and that was part of what I think led me to do the Cape Epic last year and, and hopefully some more endurance racing in the future. Nice, very cool. I mean, were you, were you scared? I, mean, I, I Personally, I've, yeah. I've been in that position where we're in the front of a race and you get a little scared, right? Yeah, I would say, um, it's interesting. Like, I think I was definitely nervous, but it's also a different kind of racing. You just don't have the same expectations. So I think um, in cross-country racing, you're nervous about all these things going wrong that you know can happen and you've experienced. Whereas with this race, I was like, who knows what's going to happen? And mm -hmm. so in some ways, it took some expectations off, took some pressure off, um, and I was just kind of open to the experience, which sometimes those are when you have your best days. Yeah. Well, that was a really good day. No question. <laughs> <laughs> um, Shifting gears a little, the big change that we you know we've we've talked about this before, and people all have heard of it heard about it by now. But you're on the Scott SRAM team this year. Yeah. Thomas Frischneck's in charge of that team. It was legend of mountain bike racing. Um, you know, previously you've told me about how it's been going really well, and you're excited about it. Tell me about some of the specifics. Like, what has yeah. Thomas been been sort of what is he what has he sort of uh, taught you or what, what sort of what's it like to be under his tutelage or maybe it's yeah. Nino maybe Nino Scherter is the one who's been giving you it's, tell, tell me a little yeah. more about it I mean it's been inc an incredible experience for me so far it's a huge opportunity to work with the biggest names in the sport um, and to have a level of support that's really unmatched um, I think one of the things that you might not know about the team unless you're uh, more familiar with them is, is just the really great fun and relaxed atmosphere that I think everyone has. I think, mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously they're some of the best racers in the world and they're very serious and they take their preparation very seriously. Um, and that goes not just for the athletes, but for our mechanics and our swingers and our team manager, everyone's really trying to be at the top of their game. But I think um, there's also a great kind of camaraderie and we have the hashtag fun is fast at our team camp. And I think um, for me, I really feed off of that kind of energy that positive, mutually supportive environment. And I think that's going to be a huge um, asset for me going into the World Cup races, you know, really feeling like I'm part of a team and, and we're working towards a goal together. Um, more specifically, I think there's been a couple big changes for me this year. One is having Brad as my full-time mechanic. Mm -hmm. And so that's been a huge opportunity. We've done all these U.S. races together. Um, and that means not just having the best support here, but it means that we can start testing things and dialing in so that I, when I get to those bigger World Cup races, we have, 
you know, the, the issues ironed out and have really mm-hmm. made some big learnings um, in terms of equipment setup. And then also having Thomas Frischneck as the team manager. Um, Frischie's been unbelievable in terms of coaching me and giving me um, real kind of practical, technical advice and tactical advice mm. at races. Of course, he works closely with my coach, Jim Miller, and, and Jim's in charge of all my training. But um, but I think Frischie has a really good eye and, and has watched so many mountain bike races and knows so much about it and has raced in so many mountain bike races that um, that level of experience is kind of unmatched and is something that's been a huge positive addition to my preparation this year. Does something come to mind specifically that he's told you or or instructed you on that like surprised you or you're like, wow, that light bulb comes on? I think generally just ascending is something that's been a focus for me this year. And Uh and he's um, super helpful in terms of pushing me in technical descents and and helping me master real skills that enabled me to go faster. Um, I think one of the biggest surprises has been the role of equipment in that. Mm. Um, Having the lockout and also having... um, just some other changes on the bike have enabled me to be a little more confident and um, working with Frishy, he is able to really connect like what equipments that I've been using to how it's performing um, on real trails. So for me, like knowing, okay, I can run this tire pressure and uh, take this line in a corner and trust that everything's set up right and, and that I'm, you know, empowered to do that mm-hmm. um, has enabled me to ride faster downhill. And I think it's not just kind of the equipment setup and not just the skills but kind of the melding of all of those different things that enables you to have a really smooth ride mm-hmm. and of course nino is arguably the best technical hand- handler in the world for cross-country racing i mean i'm sure he could hop in a downhill race if he <laughs> <did too. laughs> has, yeah. has he been part of that at all um, yeah, I think, you know, I'm I'm just really in a position to learn from everyone that's around me, which is yeah. where I thrive the most, and mm-hmm. I think I'm I'm really happy to be in that position. Um, we definitely got some time to all train together at team camp, and of course, for me, it's a balance of, of keeping myself in check, because as you said, those guys are the best descenders in the business, and yeah. um, they're really unbelievably quick, but I think it's been a good opportunity to kind of take some learnings from them, and then also have Frishy. um a little bit more individually to be able to start to chip away at, at that big challenge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, the times that I've spoke to Frishy, he really has this great demeanor of kind of, he's, he's calm, but he's pretty outgoing and he's willing to talk, but he's, he's, not, he's not too, like, he doesn't come off too strong. It, it, tell me about your relationship that you've been developing with him. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been incredible for me so far, I think. Uh, you know, part of what brought me to this team was really wanting to improve and wanting to be around people that would um, help me find those ways to improve. And Frishy certainly has done that. Um, and I think, you know, being able to have a team manager that understands how racing works and, and really, um, you know, for example, at Sea Otter, like really protects my time and makes sure that I'm getting what I need to perform on race day, but also is honest with you and, uh, and understands you know, when you need to step up your game and we'll tell you. So yeah. I think um, all around it's pushing me to be a better athlete and, and hopefully we'll pay off in the next couple of years. Is that tough sometimes to kind of get tough oh, love from him? <laughs> I, I do love tough love though. I hate, uh, I think I've always been the person who thrives with coaches where like, 
it's really hard for them to say good job but mm. like when they do you've really earned it so mm. that's kind of how I work and, and for me uh, both Jim and first year I like that they're really honest about when I'm performing well and so I know when they say good job I'm doing a really good job mm. uh, and if something can be changed that they will you know they're not gonna like beat around the bush or lie to me about something they're, they're just gonna tell me what needs to change um, and for me that's the only way to improve and get better and so um, I'm really lucky to have a team that that can see those changes and help me make them. Mm, nice. And so really where this comes into play is I'm sure the World Cups, which are going to kick off in a few weeks here. The first one, I believe, is Albstadt in Germany. Yeah. Um, how are you feeling with with a full World Cup schedule ahead of you? What's your confidence level? What's your preparation yeah. level like right now? And I'm incredibly excited. I think um, the first half of the season went really well, and mm -hmm. I was feeling really strong. Um, we're in a big training block now, of course, preparing for those races, so you get a little tired. But uh, mm -hmm. but I think um, I'm in a really really good place fitness wise, and um, definitely feeling confident and excited to take the line at the first World Cups. How do you compare to last year? Um, I'd, I mean, I've definitely made a lot of improvements from last year, um, but you never know. I think the first race is kind of the moment of truth in terms of how you're feeling, and from there we just adjust um, and keep moving forward. Because I believe you had a pretty good ride at Alpshot last year. If I'm not it was 10th, yeah. yeah. That's for... It was solid. Yeah. And it was your debut elite World Cup race. So. Uh, it was our... They had South oh, Africa. Oh, the South Africa. I but forgot about that. We can just forget about South Africa. That was not so good for you, <laughs> That's yeah. again. So the World Cups, of course, it's like this huge buildup to the Olympics. Everyone's Absolutely. talking about it. The big sort of news is that the American women went ahead of the Canadian women into the second place in the nation yeah. rankings. So potentially there's three start spots available, but it's going to be, of course, the tally. We keep, keep it tallying until uh, May, and, or end of May 2020. Um, of course. Talk to me about this crop of American cross-country female not bike racers. Um, do you feel like this is one of the best ever, or what? What is what is Absolutely. it? Absolutely, you know, yeah. What do we have going right now? I would say that we have a really talented um, pool to pick from, and that if we earn those three spots, we'll we'll really have earned them, um, and can send three really capable riders, which would be super exciting, and also might give the opportunity for maybe a younger rider to go, or for people to get experience that might be bigger contenders later on, um, which I think always has great value in terms of the longevity of our uh, mm -hmm. cycling success in America. I think, um, you know, it's, it's great that we have this level of competition, because I think it keeps us all on our toes, especially early in the season. Um, for me, I always feel like I come into the season you know, of course, focused on those later races, but really, really challenged at the beginning of the season. And that's um, something that pushes you to grow and get better, where I think a lot of um, top riders in other countries are, are kind of walking away with it mm -hmm. often early in the season. Mm -hmm. So um, for me, it's been a huge asset to have such competitive racing here in the States and to be able to, um, you know, really use it as preparation early in the season. Um, yeah, in terms of my own, like, Olympic kind of journey, it's it's definitely in the back of my mind and has been, um, you know, the goal for a number of years already. But mm. uh, I think the way the selection is crafted this year and, um, you know, the way I've been riding, my focus is really just on those bigger World Cup and World Championship goals that, you know, already would be the focus. So for sure. me, I'm hoping that if I just can stay focused on uh, on what I've been doing and, and those kind of 
process goals for me that um, hopefully we will get those three spots and uh, selection will take care of itself. Yeah, nice. And <laughs> yeah, knock on wood, right? And of course, you all went down to Pan Am Championships recently, or yeah, championships. Yeah. I get the in games Mexico. in Mexico. I know the yeah, yeah, there are the games as well <laughs> this confusing. year, but so. Uh, I got to think that a bit of, you got a bit of camaraderie, that sort of thing. What's it like? Do you guys, are you guys in touch with each other? Are you kind of encouraging each other? What's it like? Yeah, I think we have a great environment. Everyone gets along really well. And, you know, it's not just this year. Like, we've all been racing together for many, many years. Sure. And, you know, going to World Championship races together. And, of course, Olympic years are a little special. But, um, you know, I think we take that great atmosphere with us through it. Nice. That's good. Um when it comes to these World Cup races, what is the preparation like to, to go into one of these compared to, to something like a, a domestic Pro XCT or, or uh, off-road series, an uh, epic ride series? Yeah, it kind of depends on like what level of priority it is for me and um, where it fits into the season. The epic rides historically have always fit into big training blocks, so yeah. they're a little bit of an ac- extra challenge, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, the Pro XCTs, some of them will choose to target a little bit more than others, but historically these races are just a great build through the spring. And of course, um, the eye is always on those kind of early World Cups and being really strong and, and a little bit more rested when we get mm-hmm. into this. So like the week of a World Cup race, talk, talk to me about that. Is it like is it like Monday you're already like locked in and you've got everything yeah. laid out and it's very... It's definitely a high level of focus. Yeah. And I think also just... Um, you know, we have a routine. We have the days that we're on course. We know what we're going to be doing that week. And, and it's a little bit lighter training volume, mm-hmm. uh, especially compared to, you know, something like this week where mm-hmm. I've got a number a number of hours in. <laughs> right, right. Definitely. Well, it's a, you know, different type of different type of challenge. But um, do you uh, who, who among who among the other American women do you feel is best suited for these World Cups? Who do you think is maybe probably got the best chance of being part of that Olympic team? Um, we'll see. You know, it's hard to say. And part of what makes the Olympics special is that you have to deliver on the day. You know, I mm. think um, for me, growing up, it's like making a world's team. You just have to generally have good results, you know, like and you'll make the team. Sure. Making the Olympics is a different ballgame. Yeah. You have to meet selecting, selection criteria. You can't be sick on that day. Like, you have to deliver when it counts. And so, you know, no one's a safe bet. Um, right. And I think that's what makes it really exciting and really challenging. And I think what encourages us all to really step up our game heading into this next year. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I think Erin's been a really, really strong competitor. She's had injuries the last few years, but I think... Um, has come back for them really, really strong and was 11th at Worlds and I think could really be a World Cup contender this year. Nice. Yeah. Aaron Huck, of course. Um, And then, of course, you've, you know, over the years, you developed a pretty close relationship with Leah Davison when you Mm -hmm. guys were riding together. Have you have you reached out to her and talked much about the Olympics um, in in recent like months or in the last year or so? Have you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's more. Of, it's definitely an individual thing. Everyone's okay. got their program and their plan, and mm-hmm. they're sticking to it. And we all hope that uh, everyone races well, and and you just manage to race your best on the day when it counts. Nice. Yep. Definitely. Uh, okay. So. 
tell me about the shark fin. We've got, you know, all the all, a lot of the pro riders now. You, they've got their personal their personal Not logos, it. and now you've got your shark fin as part Big of your. I like it. Fan of the shark. I just am a huge fan of sharks. I uh, I remember watching Shark Week. We'd always go to Mont Saint Anne when we used to race Junior World Cups there, and my friend uh, Kaylee Blevins and I would always watch Shark Week. That was we didn't have internet. We just had cable TV, and it was always Shark Week. So. <laughs> That's kind of where it started, but uh, but I think yeah, I'm just a big fan of sharks, so why not uh, have a little extra inspiration around? I like it, I like it, and it's related to the whole Kate is an animal Instagram. Yeah, account. I mean sharks have been known to attack. <laughs> I have sometimes occasionally been known to attack. Sometimes, we'll see. It's like every race, <laughs> so like every race. Cool. Well, thanks for your time. Appreciate you catching awesome. up with you. Thank you. It's good to see you. I'm glad we made it work. Yeah. This was very chill. Well, okay, Courtney. Uh, yeah, it sounds like an interesting relationship with Frishy. Mm-hmm. Um, that'll be that'll be a storyline to follow as well. Yeah. So, Spencer, that's going to do it for us, and that's going to do it for you. You know, you are always welcome to come in if you want to be on our podcast and Ooh. chime in with some hot takes. I, I do expect guest appearance. The takes, though, to be completely flaming and hot. Oh. Which you right. know leads me, I guess, before we get out of here, do you have any just? burning hot takes huh. from 2019 pro cycling that you need to get off of your chest before you leave Velenews because they're just too hot. They're just scorching. They're just, <laughs> they're just nuclear takes, atomic takes that are going to like singe the listener's ears um, that you want to get off your chest. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, yes. Okay. I, okay. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's. Your Peter Sagan is done. Yeah. Peter Sagan is done. Yeah. He'll never win another race. <laughs> okay. I Obviously, like this spring is proven. Yeah. He's total scrub. Totally. Uh, Team Sky, new sponsor. It's gonna. It's all gonna go to hell in a handbasket. They're not gonna win any more Grand Tours. They're over. I like that. Yeah. Bernal is gonna crash out of the Giro. Yeah. Froome and Thomas are gonna like fight each other and, and end up both DNFing the Tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, Valverde is gonna win the the Vuelta. Probably, maybe, who knows? And then Vanderpool is going to win worlds. Okay, because we all love Vanderpool. He's yeah. the best. He's he's totally the best. All of the world championships but, at once. Mm, yes, yeah. Because I mean, just based on you know a month or so of racing this spring, he's clearly the top top dog. There's like, no one who can beat him. I like this take. Uh, I don't know. Do you want do you want any others? I can't think of anything else. Um, just completely outrageous. <laughs> I'm trying to think of any other outrageous <laughs> takes. Um, I think that maybe like the Giro will supplant the Tour de France as the biggest uh, race because oh, obviously so strong. Yeah. Oh, Giro is so much more exciting to watch than the Tour. Wow. No do you have any Masters cyclocross takes? <laughs> I don't yeah. think I don't think we have time left. I yeah. think we're we're running out of time for it. We want to keep this short for the listeners, so we'll we'll save those for another time. Well, thanks again, Spencer. You are going to be a tremendous success in your new career. Come back and see us whenever. And of course, we would love to hear your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at pocketoutdoormedia.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on Villanews.com. Subscribe to the Villanews podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Villanews on Facebook at Facebook.com slash News Magazine. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash News. News Podcast is produced by News, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions, even those of Spencer, expressed on the News Podcast are those of the individual. And as always, it's the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blowout playing the Bernard Purdy Classic Soul Drums. Oh